0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right. Good morning, church. Great to see you guys. Let's take out our Bibles today and turn to the book of Exodus. We took a break last week from Exodus because we had a power outage, so we called an audible and went to Psalm 57, but we're going to pick back up our study of Exodus today in Exodus chapter 32, if you turn there uh, in your Bibles. We've got one more teaching in Exodus, which we'll do after our mission Sunday next week. I can't wait for you to hear uh, Pastor Justin share next week. He is the president of Calvary Chapel Bible College currently, but before that, he had a long-run Uh, planting and pastoring a church on Capitol Hill in Seattle. And uh, if you followed the news over the last five or six years, you know that Capitol Hill was a wild place to do ministry. And so he's got great stories of what it's like to be in proximity with those who need to hear about Jesus and just being faithful uh, in a place like that. So I can't wait to have you here From him, then we'll finish Exodus, the Sunday after Mission Sunday. And then after that, we're gonna get into the book of Micah together. A little seven chapter prophecy in the Old Testament. It Might be the first time for some of you that you've gone from the first verse to the last verse of one of the Old Testament prophets. So it's gonna be an honor to be able to go through uh, that book together. Before we get into the text today, I just wanna double back and say, yeah, I'm looking forward to the life group Quarter This quarter, and especially for those of you who are newer to church in general or are newer to this church in particular, I want to encourage you to take that bold step of faith. I know it can be a scary thing to shift from watching online, looking at the church from afar, then darkening the doors and coming live and in person. And then, Nate, you're crazy. I'm going to go to someone's house. That's like a move that many people don't want to make. But it really is true that the walls begin coming down and connections that need to happen really begin to occur. And so I'd, I'd encourage you in that direction. We, we just live in a time where we have to discipline ourselves to pursue Actual, tangible human connections and relationship because it's so easy to drift into just the digital sphere and distracting ourselves and all of that. So I'd encourage you today to get into a group if that describes you. Okay, today we're looking at Exodus 32 to 34. It would take us about 20 minutes to just read through that entire passage. So I have selected two portions, the first 10 verses, or 11 verses, excuse me, of chapter 32 and the first 10 of chapter 34. We'll put them on the screen, but if you wanna follow along there or in your Bibles, feel free, let's read it together. So it's in verse one, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, "'Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord.' And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In verse seven, the Lord said to Moses, "'Go down, for your people whom you brought up "'out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves.'" They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, And said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Their conversation went on, but let's jump forward to chapter 34, verse 1. Uh, After a moment of prayer and interaction, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai to present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud And stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray this morning just thinking about this passage, this movement, this dark movement in Israel's life and history and trajectory, but also this glorious moment in your revelation to us. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us from it, that you'd teach us, Lord, who you are from your word. Tell us, Lord, of what your nature is like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, things at this point in the book of Exodus could not have been going much better for the people of Israel. Uh, After 400 years in Egypt, God's people were now free. Through the plagues, through the blood of the Passover lamb, through the waters of the Red Sea, Yahweh had rescued his people. And just as he had promised Moses at the burning bush They had come to God's mountain to hear God's voice. And that's what we've been thinking about over the past few chapters in Exodus. There at that mountain, God invited these descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to enter into a marriage-like covenant with himself so that they could be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation who represented Yahweh to the world around them. And they responded to God's invitation with a resounding, yes, we want in. We want to be God's treasured possession, his special people. So three days later, they gathered together at Mount Sinai and God spoke the 10 commandments to the entire congregation and followed it up to Moses with hundreds of more specific laws in the book of the covenant, And he promised, I will go before you into the land where you will build your home and your holy nation. When the Hebrews heard these words from Yahweh, they accepted all of them and they ratified this covenant, this marriage with God, with a blood sacrifice. Then Moses, as we saw a few weeks ago, went up to the top of the mountain to be alone in God's presence for 40 years days. During that time, God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle system that he would use as a way to dwell among his people. And he also wrote the Ten Commandments that he'd already said to Israel on tablets of stone. God told Moses to receive an offering when he went back down the mountain with all the materials that were needed for God's house. He told Moses about All the furniture that would be inside and outside of his house, an altar of sacrifice, a basin for washing were on the outside, while a lampstand and a table and an altar of incense were on the inside. And in the innermost room of his house, God told Moses, there would be an ark of the covenant, a box where God promised that he would meet with Israel. Yahweh gave then Moses plans for Israel's priesthood. Aaron and his descendants would serve the people by offering sacrifices and prayers and interacting with God on their behalf. Israel would be God's special people gathered at his tent to commune with him, a holy nation and a kingdom of priests centered upon Yahweh. It was beautiful. Like I said, it couldn't have been going any better. But as those 40 days on the mountain drew to a close, Yahweh told Moses what was happening in the valley below. Aaron and the people were undoing nearly every element of the covenant God had created. While Moses received the plans for the tabernacle and the two tablets, Israel wondered down below if he would ever return. Well, Moses' absence neared the six-week mark. The people demanded something tangible to worship and told Aaron to make them gods who would go before them. Aaron made them this golden calf, which he said brought them out of Egypt, and they worshiped it. The next day, Aaron added to the confusion by proclaiming a feast to Yahweh, which became only another day to sacrifice to the golden calf and engage in community-wide orgiastic celebrations before their new false god. Needless to say, God was angry. And it's this anger that we are going to consider this morning. Uh, But I'm going to drive this episode all the way through to chapter 34, beyond the cliffhanger of God's wrath revealed in chapter 32, lest I fail to give the entire picture of who God is. Too often, Exodus 32, the worship of the golden cap, is used as a great opportunity to beat people up. Oh, you're a bunch of idol worshipers, and you know it, and God is angry about it, and we close the book and pause until God reveals himself most fully in chapter 34. At the end of this story, after hearing Moses' mediate a voice, God reveals his truest nature and how much he loves these golden calf worshipers in the valley below. We're not to think of God as an abusive husband flying off the handle in a rage, but a broken-hearted husband, sad at what his spouse is doing in the valley below. We're not to think of God as a raging father lashing out in anger when his children disappoint him but one who cares deeply for his children and is pained at the self-destructive choices they are making. And though Israel broke their covenant with God down in that valley, God restored that covenant at the end of this story and brought them right back into His plans. So though there's a ton we could draw from these three chapters, what we're going to do today is restrain ourselves to three questions. First, what angers God? Second. What is God truly like? And third, how can we experience that God if we want to? Okay, so let's think about this first question. What angers God? What angers God? I'm pretty sure that for some of you right now, even the question itself makes you feel a little weird, like you're uncomfortable with the idea that God could feel anger at all. You know, many of us don't wanna think of God as capable of anger Uh, Capable of feeling even, and definitely not capable of wrath. Uh, But in our passage, God clearly said to Moses, I've seen this people, it's a stiff-necked people, let me alone, therefore, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, I know what some people like to do with words like this in the Bible, or, and especially in the Old Testament. A lot of people like to jump in a little uh, escape pod called the, that's the God of the Old Testament escape pod. <laughs> okay. But there's a couple reasons you can't do that. First of all, the Old Testament is our Bible too, yo. <laughs> you know, it took a long time for the New Testament to get developed. How do you think the early church got launched? They opened up the Bible, they turned to the Old Testament. That, this is our Bible too. Uh, secondly, the New Testament talks about God's wrath as well. Paul said it like this in Romans 1.18. He said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I mean, if you want to understand what's going on in our world society culture today, go read from that verse on in Romans chapter one. You'll see a, des- a description of what is happening in our world today. There are no exegetical ninja skills that I can apply here to soften these sentences about God. I can't tell you today that words like wrath and burn hot and consume them actually in the Hebrew are words for deep care, warm feelings, and snuggle time. I I can't tell you that. And I hesitate to obfuscate with a $5 word like anthropomorphism. You know, this is just human language describing the feelings or the actions of the divine. Now, the simple and straightforward answer is best. God was angry. God did not act out on that anger here in this episode, but he did tell his friend Moses all about it. Some even say that God was processing his feelings and bringing his man, Moses, into his pathos. Moses then appealed to God on multiple levels. God responded by declaring his nature before restoring his people. He loved the golden calf worshipers in the valley below. But we often get too tripped up by the fact that God can be angry to ask just what is it that angers him? Somehow, along the way, we came to think that God should be stoic, that God should be unemotional, that God should be detached. But he isn't. What good father doesn't care about his children and doesn't care about their actions? For some reason, God has decided that it's worth his time to invest himself in rescuing his people and fighting for a restoration of all that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And it angers him when something undoes his restorative work in his people's lives. And that is precisely what is happening in this passage. You gotta understand, God is not snapping here because someone said a swear or someone thought a lustful thought. God is not lashing out because someone watched a movie they shouldn't have watched or broke the speed limit. God isn't acting out as a cosmic killjoy here who hates seeing his people have a good time in the valley below. No, God is angry because while he had been recreating the Garden of Eden, they were destroying it. Right when God was in the middle of telling them how he would dwell tangibly in their midst in that tabernacle as he had in Eden, they were breaking the covenant. Well, God told Moses to collect the various elements, including gold for the tabernacle and its elements. They were using that very same gold to make a calf for their licentious forms of worship. While God was explaining a tabernacle system that would create a point of contact between him and his people, they were creating a competing point of contact with a false idol. While God was detailing to Moses an altar and the annual festivals that his people would participate in, they were building their own altar and engaging in their own festival. And while God was describing a holy priesthood that would flow from Aaron and his ancestry that would help keep the nation's eyes on God, Aaron below was acting as a priest who drew God's people away from God. They were undoing all the commandments down in the valley, other gods making idols disrespecting leaders, engaging in sexual sin. They were a runaway train against the entire covenant they had just made with God. This was the cataclysmic rejection of the beautiful covenant that God had just spent hundreds of years making. This is not just adultery. This is like a new bride committing adultery on her honeymoon. That's what breaks God's heart. What angers him is when his people go into self-destroy mode to rage against the beautiful destiny he has spent so much to build for them. He was angry with them because of his intense love for them. By the end of this passage, he will recommit to these very same people and restore them back to the covenant, but it it grieved his fatherly heart to see them settling for something so cheap and so dehumanizing when they could have waited for his true presence and his true glory to dwell among them. It broke his heart to see them debasing themselves for so much less than what he was going to give them for free. God's heart was broken. I was recently talking to my youngest daughter, and uh, she's a sophomore in high school, and she got an opportunity this year to go to her first like high school sporting event that had cheerleaders at it. And so she came home and she's kind of she tells us what's going on. And so she she mentioned the cheerleaders, and I asked her, I'm like, oh, what do you think about the, the cheerleaders? You know, like what, what was that like for you? And she's like, they were really cool but they sure spell out a lot of things, you know? <laughs> that was her comment, you know, B, I, C, T, R, O, Y, you know, kind of deal. <laughs> well, this passage, this is God spelling out the stuff of his heart. All the way back in chapter 20, he said, in the 10 Commandments, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And at the end of this passage in chapter 34, verse 14, God will declare himself again to be a jealous God. What that means is not that he's paranoid or strange, but he wants exclusivity with us. He craves us for himself because he knows he's the only God who will not hurt us. What angers him are things that degrade us and things that distance us from him things that take us out of relational closeness with him and marital faithfulness to him. That's what angers God. Okay, the second question that I want to ask today, and we've already been thinking about it to a degree, but is the the question, what is God like? According to this passage, what is God like? Uh, This question is the reason I wanted to drive all the way to chapter 34 uh, in one sitting. Because if we only focused on God's response in chapter 32 to the golden calf, we might miss the truest depiction of himself to Moses in chapter 34. Uh, But to find out what God is like so that we might know him best, we we need this last segment of the episode. What happened here is that from the tent uh, of meeting that Moses built, uh, he uttered three prayers to Yahweh. Uh, The first prayer uh, was a request that God would reveal himself more fully. Uh, he felt unsure of God's plans after the golden calf incident. And God told him that his angel would go with him into the promised land, but Moses wanted more details. You know, how's that gonna look? So he said to God in thirty three thirteen, show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And God responded, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So God says, I'm going to go with you. But Moses wanted confirmation of that, so he said a second prayer. He said, if your presence in 35 or 3315, he said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Like, I don't want to go into the promised land if you're not going to go with us. I love you. I love the commandments, the law, the covenant, Sinai, but I look forward to the worship of the tabernacle uh, But will that even happen now that these people have worshipped the golden calf? And God said in 3317, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. So I'm going to go with you. Uh, With that, though, Moses blurted out his third and final prayer in 3318. He said, please show me your glory. Like He just couldn't stand it anymore. He wanted to see God. And Yahweh responded, I will make all my goodness pass before you, And proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Uh, But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So in, in some way, God was going to show Moses the afterglow of his glory and declare his name to his men. So in the morning... Uh, Moses cuts two replacement tablets of stone. We haven't thought about it yet, but when he came down the mountain and saw the people doing what they were doing, he threw the stones down, the Ten Commandments down. They broke. These are replacements for that. And he goes up to Mount Sinai for the seventh time to be with God. Yahweh descends on the mountain in the cloud, and he proclaims his name to Moses. And what God says of himself in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, it is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. You know, it, it's the most cross-referenced scripture in all of God's word, which should tell you something. When God's Apostles and prophets were under the inspiration of the Spirit and referring to Scripture to tell us what God is like. They most often went to the well of Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. So what is God like? Well, the first thing we learn is that God is merciful. That, that word is a, is a word that indicates compassion. It's a word that's related to the word womb, It's like God felt like a mother relating to her rebellious teenager as they did what they were doing in the valley below. Who is God merciful towards? Who does God feel compassion toward? Who does God care for? Good people? No, the context is God is merciful to golden calf worshipers. God is also secondarily gracious He bestows, in other words, favor and blessing. Again, who is God gracious to? In the context, God is gracious to golden calf worshipers. He also says, I am slow to anger. In other words, you can make God mad, but it takes a really long time. Other gods are capricious, but Yahweh is long-suffering. Who is he long-suffering to? You guys know the answer to this question. Golden calf worshipers. And God is abounding in steadfast love. This means he's loyal in a super abundant way to who? Golden calf worshipers. God is abounding in faithfulness. This speaks of his authenticity, his integrity, his dependability. Who is he faithful to? Golden calf worshipers. God keeps, he says, his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin. It's his loyalty that extends to thousands of generations. Yahweh is going to clear and forgive these golden calf Worshippers, God, however, as he concludes what his name is, he says, will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, God's disposition is to forgive those guilty of sin. That's why he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But the fact remains that not everyone receives that forgiveness. So they remain in their guilt for their sin. And sin must be addressed because God is just. It's impossible for offenses to bang around the cosmos without eventual payment. Without this final statement, everything that came before it, the mercy and grace and patience and love and forgiveness might just be considered mere cosmic leniency. God's love, however, is not toothless permissiveness but radical grace towards golden calf worshipers who want it. He is forgiving, he is loving, but his grace is not a sloppy dish of cheap or spineless love. He says he visits sin to the third and fourth generations, but that he is prone to dispense grace to thousands of generations, far covering the generations visited because of their sin. What that means is that for every generation of golden calf worshipers, there is a way out. Now his self-revelation to Moses complete, God heard one final prayer from Moses for Israel, pivoted and said in verse 10 of 34, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. After that statement, God reiterated the covenant he'd already made with Israel. He'd listened to Moses' prayers. He declared his true nature. And now he was ready to get back to what he was doing before the golden calf incident. God moved on. It was covenant time. He was ready to move forward with these golden calf worshipers just as he is ready to move forward with us in our forms of idolatry today if we will come to the well that is Yahweh and drink in his grace and forgiveness and mercy. So what is God like? That's his description of himself. Okay, last question before we take communion and go home to watch the Super Bowl. (laughs) How can we experience that God? If that's what angers God, if if that's who God truly is, how, how can we experience that God? Throughout the whole passage, portions we read and portions we didn't read, it's clear that Moses stood between God and the people, or at least that's what it looks like. And it appears that God was moved by Moses, and the things that Moses reminded him of and said to him, the promises that He brought out, God, your reputation, your character, he's, re- he's reminding God, He's appealing to God's nature and character and promises. Now I believe that Moses was merely drawing out God's truest nature with his prayers speaking and interceding in a way that provided God an avenue to beautifully declare his wonderful character over these golden calf worshipers and for Israel to experience that character. But but how did Moses do this? What did Moses do? What did Moses say? What attributes did he have that moved God? Why did God hear his voice? Well, there's a lot of things that Moses said and a lot of back and forth that if we had a longer service, we'd have time for. But The three main things that Moses did is first he mediated uh, with God. He spoke to God. He interceded for Israel in his prayers. He reminded God of his promises. He met with God then every day in a temporary tent of meeting to fellowship with the Lord. So he spoke with God. Second, Moses was a mediator who spoke to the people. He represented God to the people. He came down the mountain, he threw the tablets to the ground. It was like a visual representation. You broke all these laws. God has seen what you have done. He reminded them of God. He he ground the golden calf into powder, it says in the text. Put it on water, sprinkled it on water and made the people drink it. It was like his way of saying, you're gonna have to deal with some consequences to your actions, God will forgive you. God will give you grace. God will extend you incredible mercy. He'll bring you right back into this covenant, but there is a price to pay for this rebellion. He then confronted Aaron. Aaron had all these lame excuses. He's just like Adam in the Garden of Eden. You know, he's just got, he's like, I don't know, they brought me this gold. I threw it in the fire and this calf came out. That's what he said. (laughs) Like, he's just nuts. Like, Moses is gonna believe that. (laughs) And then Moses had a hand in disciplining the people severely so so he speaks to the people but the third thing Moses did is at the center of this whole episode it's shocking in his prayer with God he offered himself instead of the people After rebuking everyone, the next day, Moses goes back to God in prayer and he offers to die in their place if that's what it took for them to be forgiven. It's wild, because the day before, God said, let my wrath burn hot against them and I'll make a new nation. I'll fulfill all my Abrahamic promises through you, Moses. And Moses goes back up the next day. He's like, I don't want that offer the offer I want is if, if I could somehow die so that they could go in, I want to die. And God rejects that offer. He says to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, that's the one that I will blot out of my book. In other words, Moses, you haven't sinned. The people have. Then he told Moses to go lead the people into the promised land and that he would go with them by his angel's presence, which led Moses to pray, God, please be the one to go with us directly. Okay, this last little thing I want to point out to you. How can we experience this God? Okay, the lesson I'm trying to draw out here in this final point isn't that we should be like Moses. That, That could be like a decent lesson, you know? Moses prayed, he spent time with the Lord. That's great, but that's not the point I'm trying to make here. The true lesson that I want to hold out is if you want to experience this God, you need to find a mediator like Moses. You need to find the one who is so close with the Father that his voice is always heard by the Father. You need to find the one who knows the Father so well that he represents the Father with perfection. You need to find the one who fully and totally deals with sin. You need to find the one who invites you into the renewal of repentance. You need to find the one who has familial closeness with God. And you need to find the one whose offer to die in our place was accepted by the Father. What am I saying here? You need to find Jesus. He's the one who builds the bridge from the Father to us. He translates God the Father's care and concern to us. He takes us to the glory of God's goodness. He unleashes the goodness of God upon his people. Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy 2, 5. He said, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Even Moses, later in his life, said that we should look for Jesus. Forty years later, on the cusp of entering into the promised land, Moses told Israel, the Lord is your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And when Jesus came around, John seems to have alluded to that when he said in John 1:16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Whose grace and whose truth came through Jesus Christ? Yahweh's grace, God's grace, his truth, who he declared himself to be in Exodus 34, six and seven, that comes to us through Jesus Christ. Through the son's work on the cross, the father's love found no barrier. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom because Jesus's death unleashed the Father's love and now we can fully know the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.